We love reading about that day that the church had been established. We remember how the Apostle Peter stood. And with a loud voice, where he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says that it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And of course, we know exactly what transpires after that. We see more than 3,000 people surrender their all to the Lord. They are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Much later on in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, we, we see the Apostle Paul reminiscing on exactly how he came into Christ being told. And now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. And we love that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, because of our memories of when that was us. And yet it seems like the problem is, is that we often exclusively associate that act of calling on the name of the Lord with something that is only done at our salvation. When in reality, what we find in the book of Acts, in those verses which follow that, especially in verse 42, is that we see those original Christians Really, as they called on the name of the Lord at baptism, that was really just the beginning of what was a lifetime of them calling on, on God's name over and over and over again. We see this original church and how these past few weeks we have seen them continuously committing themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And last week was in the breaking of bread. And as that continues here this morning, we see that, that even though God has lavishly blessed them with the right teaching and with the right individuals to be a community of believers with, we find yet another vital ingredient that is very important to their spiritual survival. And as we see in verse 42, that, that very vital ingredient is prayer, is continuously calling on the name of the Lord alongside together. Where it says in Acts 2 and verse 42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And yet what I love about these people is that this is nothing new at this point. Because as we see in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Jesus has ascended back to the Father. Jesus is now ascended into heaven. It makes mention how they have now returned into Jerusalem. It makes mention of all of the apostles' names. And yet notice what is happening, though, in verse 14 of chapter 1 where it says that, that all of these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. See, I just love how even, even long before this church has been established and the Spirit has been poured out on that day of Pentecost, these people, even though they are slightly confused, we thought Jesus was going to be an earthly king. Jesus has gone away. 
And yet they do not lose heart. But rather what they do is they, they remain close together. Apparently all the time they are lifting up their voices and they are praying to God, God, we're not going to give up. God, please give us our guidance and our direction that we need. And as I look at my life, I can say with full, full assurance that, that the greatest things in my life are the direct result of many prayers. My wife is the result of many, many prayers that I, I prayed once upon a time. This church and the fact that we are now here ministering along with you and growing together with you, that is a result of so many prayers that we specifically had prayed many months ago. And I know for a fact that, that your greatest blessings in your own life, that too is the result of so many prayers. Maybe you prayed those prayers. Maybe others also prayed on your behalf. And yet our greatest blessings are the result of prayers. And yet with all that being true, why does it seem like we still don't pray as often as we should? Could it be that maybe we don't understand what prayer is? Is it sometimes that we really don't believe in the power of God when we're praying at times? Really, regardless of the reason why we do not pray as often or as or as zealously as we should. It is a tragic outcome because, as one writer says in Scripture, you do not have because you haven't asked God. As we sing many times, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry, notice, everything to God in prayer. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that God made us. God invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on, on oil and on petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else, he says. God has designed the human machine to run on he himself. He is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn, and there is no other fuel. Amen. And yet that's exactly what we do when we are not praying. We are relying on the fuel of our own power, wisdom, and ingenuity. And that's when we run out of gas, isn't it? I admire very much a woman whose name is Corey Boom, and she was a Dutch missionary living in the days of the war, and she would house Jews in her house in the days of the Holocaust. And in her writing, she says that when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, our adversary smiles. When a Christian stops studying Scripture, Satan laughs out loud. And when a Christian stops praying, our devil shouts for joy. It just seems like where there is a church that is struggling along, 
where there is a church that is drowsy, that is whatever a problem might be in any given church, most commonly, the, the most glaring missing ingredient in that church is that of prayer. And when I say prayer, I don't mean prayer. I mean real New Testament kind of praying. This very likely is the reason why so many churches and, and so many Christians, it feels like our Christian lives are just stuck and we are stuck and stranded in the mud and our tires are spinning and we're going absolutely nowhere. We live in a nation that is more concerned that, that there's no more prayer in schools when the problem at hand many times is that we no longer have prayer in the church. And the even worse problem many times is that we do is that we don't even have prayer anymore in our houses, in our marriages. And yet these original Christians inspire me, though. I used to wonder so often, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, pray without ceasing. Well, well how can I pray literally all the time around the clock? I think we just found our answer in verse 42 that they were continuously devoting and committing themselves to calling on the name of the Lord in prayer. This is how it's done. But having said that, I have a confession that I need to make to this church. And that confession is that even though I am the minister at this church and a herald of the gospel of Christ, even though I have been a Christian 20 years this October, I do not know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. And neither do you. Neither do you, because when we read the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writing to the saints there, he begins speaking about our reliance upon the Holy Spirit and just how important He really is to us. And then he makes mention about what exactly happens when we pray. And there he says that in this same way, the Holy Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. God in His Word says we do not know how to pray. We, we just don't know how to do it. And yet what I learned here is a lot, actually. What I learned about prayer in this passage is that prayer does not work like some complex algebraic equation where you have all of these very obtuse numbers that you have to crunch all of these complicated mathematical formulas that you have to solve where, where you have to use just the right amount of words, carry the six, where you have to, to impress God with how smart you sound, carry the two, you have to impress God with how eloquent you are, oh, thou holy father, and so forth. And then if we use you know, this right amount of, of words and religious phraseology, it's as if we can hear angelic humming. You know, oh, and then a loud, booming voice from the heavens. Heaven is now open. You may now proceed with your prayer. I mean, that's, that's not how prayer works, is it? 
And yet, many times, that's, that's how complicated I was making it in my mind. But it's not that complicated. God tells us that we do not know how to pray. We, we have no idea. I mean, how, how can we speak to God if that's true? We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have help when we pray. Even though we cannot speak God's true language in prayer, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit as our translator in sorts who takes our very weak, very flimsy, very um, frail human words and vernacular. And he is pleading on our behalf. He is assisting us so that we can stand before God and we can pray. And yet, if we really want our prayers to, to, to truly burn in our bones as we pray, if we want to utter prayers to God that are very fervent, then the best way to learn how to pray is to go to the Master Himself. I mean, Jesus, last week we had seen that it seems like all Jesus is doing is going to, to one party after another. And yet it's safe to say that if Jesus was not at a party eating at somebody's table, for sure He was somewhere in prayer to the Father. I mean, we see Jesus praying early in the morning before the sun came up. We see him praying late at night as the sun goes down. We see him praying all by himself. We see him praying with others. We see him praying short prayers. We see him praying literally all night long as he had an important choice to make the next day. And then one day we see Jesus praying in the Gospel of Luke and one of his followers comes up and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray because we don't know how to really pray. One minister says this. He says that nobody, notice how nobody ever came up to Jesus and said, teacher, show us how to preach. Nobody ever came up to Jesus and said, teach us how to walk on water. Teach us how to raise the dead or, or how to drive out demons. You ask a man about his expertise. You ask a person about what that individual is most skilled and most active in doing. And I believe without a doubt that the greatest demonstration of the divine power of Jesus Christ, it was not when he was raising those who were dead. It was not when he was casting out demons out of people, but the greatest showcasing of his divine powers came when he poured his soul out and he was praying to the Father. Jesus was a man of, of intense prayer and calling on the name of, of the Father. And in fact, he goes on and he says, here is how you pray. Luke's account says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Because everybody who asks receives, and everybody who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, he says, it will be opened up to you. And yet we reach those moments in our lives, though, as Christians. You might even be here as we sit here this morning. You might hear those words and say, yes, Jesus, that, that sounds nice and flowery in you know, in my Bible. I've got that as a decoration on my wall, but I'm having a hard time with that statement, Jesus. Because I have asked and asked and asked, but I have not received from you. And I have sought and sought and sought, but I have not found what I needed. And I have knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked. And yet the door remains closed in my face. I mean, what do we do with that? Because we do ask. We do seek and we do knock until our hands are bruised and bloodied. But he still hasn't opened up that door for us. Why is that? Well, in Scripture, I remember a number of times where where God's people asked, but they did not receive. I think about Moses, who was a great leader of the Israelites as we know him. And yet as a result of his sin, he is not allowed to come into the promised land. All those years wandering, and it's like right there, it's so close. And yet he prays many times to God. Once he says, let me cross over and see that fair land. Let me go beyond the Jordan to that good hill country in Lebanon. God says, no. No, I'm not going to let you come into the promised land. In fact, he even says on that last occasion, do not ask me that ever again. And Moses never walked into the promised land. I think about the Israelites praying and sacrificing and, and singing to God until they were blue in the face. And yet in the days of the prophet Isaiah, God says that when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my face away from you. I will not listen to your prayers. I will close my ears when you pray to me because your hands are covered with blood, he said. You're living a double life, and as a result of that, I will not hear your prayers or accept your worship. We love the Apostle Paul. Paul has a thorn in his side, and, and it is tormenting him day and night. He is in constant anguish. He says three times, God, please remove this thorn from my side. Get this thing out of my life. Relieve me of this excruciating pain. And yet God says, no, Paul, I'm going to let that thorn remain in your side. In fact, I might even shiv it even deeper into your side. 
He prayed and prayed and prayed. He, he knocked and knocked and knocked, but the door just did not come open. And sometimes, oftentimes, God will say no to us, won't he? And yet, in order for us to pray anything remotely like Jesus did and the apostles did, what is very important for us to do is we must conquer our misconceptions that we have about prayer. And there are a lot of misconceptions that, that we have contrived through the years about prayer. And you know, for instance, prayer is not making three wishes to our magical genie. Although many times I had thought that it was. Where we have this God in a box who is our pet. And whatever we say he has to do, every time that we snap our fingers, it's almost as if he is a divine yes man in our lives. And yet as we've seen, God is going to say, say no many times to us. So he's not a magical genie. And yet prayer is also not like rolling dice at a Las Vegas casino. And yet looking back at my life, I have treated prayer just like that many times. Where in one hand I've got a lucky rabbit's foot, and the other hand I've got some dice and I'm going, all right, come on, roll six, roll six, daddy needs a new pair of shoes, no whammies, you know. And yet that's not how prayer works. You know, just recently I had heard from a friend of mine who was going through a hard time, and he said that I had prayed and prayed and prayed for a wife, but God has not given me a wife. And, and so I'm, I'm through with prayer because prayer isn't working anymore. As I ask God for help, he doesn't help me, so it's not working. And yet that's not how prayer works. Really, I think the way that I've struggled most understanding prayer is what I call the answering um, call mode, where on our phones we say that, you have reached David Creek. I'm sorry that I can't pick this up, but if you leave your, your name and number, I'll get back to you in just a moment. And yet many times when I prayed, I couldn't help but notice that, that I say the exact same robotic, ritualized things. And it's gotten to the point where I have this thing so memorized that I don't even know exactly what I'm even saying to God. It's just a bunch of religious phrases that I'm just throwing out there and my mind is on autopilot. That is not what prayer is. Prayer is also not some grandiose speech that we make to God. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that, that when you pray, do not go on babbling like those who don't know God, thinking that they will be heard because of their many words. He says that, that you don't have to do that because your Father knows exactly what you need before you even ask Him. Prayer is not sitting on Santa's lap. And yet many times that is unconsciously how we approach prayer. I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions about prayer, but if that's not what prayer is, then, then what exactly is real prayer and true prayer? I mean, how can we ask so that we will receive? How can we seek so we will find and, and knock so the door will be open to us? What I'm discovering in my life is that in order to really pray,
pray in that way. It's going to take us redefining what prayer actually is. It's very interesting how, it, how in the original language, when that word prayer appears in the New Testament, many times, yes, it is defined as speaking to God, at times as worship. But did you know that the most literal definition of the word prayer, it means to exchange wishes. Really, the most literal translation is that, we, that as we pray, we are interacting with God through the conversion of our human wishes until our own desires start looking like God's desires. Prayer is one of those places where what we want then becomes what God wants. You see, prayer is so much more than us merely speaking to God. Prayer is really more about having our hearts and our attitudes changed. Prayer is that altar where we take our own desires and selfish ambitions and we lay that up on the altar. And we crucify those desires and we slay those desires. Prayer is where we express and articulate our needs, yes. But as we're voicing those concerns and we're praying those prayers to God, God looks at us and he sees us silently making a declaration to him. A silent declaration that says, Lord, I need you to change my mind. I want you to revolutionize the way that I think, the way that I love, and the way that I live. Prayer is not us barking our entitled wish list to a cosmic Santa Claus. Prayer is exchanging our wishes and taking on his wishes, his wisdom, and his power for our life. When we pray, God does not want a multi-million dollar Broadway production, 4th of July fireworks show of pious eloquence. All that God wants is for our hearts to beat for him. He wants our minds to think the way that his mind thinks. Really, what we can envision when we pray, if this would help, is that prayer is a currency exchange of our wishes. When we pray, it's kind of like if you've ever been at the airport going to a foreign country, and you know that you're going to a country where, yes, you have American cash, and yet, if you go into a third world country, if you try to rely on this, you're not going to be able to buy anything. You're going to starve unless you convert your American cash into something that is completely foreign to you. And that is the currency of that native land. That is what prayer truly is. And so as we pray, we begin praying, perhaps at times we're very angry with somebody. We have a person in our life who's mistreating us. And yet as we pray, we, we begin that prayer very angry, very vengeful. We despise that person. And yet as we come to God in prayer, we say, God, I'm laying all of this anger, all of this 
lust for retribution on the altar. And then all of a sudden, we have something that is completely foreign to us. Now, all of a sudden, we have a love and a peace within our hearts for that person that, that was not there before as we began praying. I have shared before my, my war with you know, anxiety. And I can't tell you how many times I have come to God praying and I just have all of this anxiety. I am scared to death. I am worried about everything in the world. And I'm thinking, God, I cannot do this. I cannot go into the city and engage people for you. This problem at work, this problem wherever it was in my life, it is so much bigger than I am. I cannot do it. And yet, when in those times I had stopped worrying about it, and I, instead of complaining about my life, I had prayed. I said, God, I want you to give me all of my anxiety. I am laying it all on the altar. And then, I mean, just before I knew it, all of a sudden, I, I have all of this peace. I mean, just a perfect peace coursing through my spirit. And now, all of a sudden, I'm not even scared anymore. Now I'm thinking, yes, this problem is bigger than I am. But I serve a God who is bigger than this problem is. It's still true that I cannot do this, this, this great task in my life. And yet the God who I serve, He is more than able to do it. And so now I'm walking out of that, that prayer. I am emerging out of that prayer victorious. I feel like a you know, football player running through a tunnel now because now that prayer has completely changed the way in which I am operating. Prayer is a currency exchange of our wishes. That is what prayer truly is. You see, this is why Jesus says that when you have enemies, do not harbor unforgiveness towards them. But rather, when you pray, take all of that human angst and say, Father, instead of despising this person, I pray for their greatest blessings in this world. Please bless them. Please let us love each other somehow. That is a complete change of the mind. I think about Paul as he begged and begged God, remove this thorn from my side. God said no, but God changed Paul's mind. Because now, all of a sudden, Paul now has a completely different understanding of his human adversity. Now he says, this is one of my greatest blessings. Because when I am weak, it is a powerful showing to the world that in Christ, now I am strong. God, don't you take this thorn away from me, ever. Because it is a joy. This is why we see Jesus praying in Gethsemane, sweat drops of blood falling on the ground. Father, I do not want to die for these people. He comes back and prays a second time, Father, remove this cup from my hands. I don't have to die for these people. He comes back a third time, prays, sweat drops hitting the grass. God, Father, remove this cup from me. I don't want to do this. And yet the longer that he prays, though, his mind changes completely. I don't want to do this. 
but it's not about me, Father. This is really about you. And so if you want me to go to that cross, I am going to that cross. This is what happens when we pray. Our minds and our hearts are completely transformed in the presence of the living God. We have to redefine prayer. We also must reimagine what prayer is. And if you have never watched the movie War Room, you have got to watch this movie. It's a powerful movie, and it has a beautiful Christian woman whose name is Miss Clara. She's got this closet, and she shows it to a realtor, and she says, this is where I do all of my fighting. This is, she refers to it as her war room. And her realtor says, well, that's nice and that's cute, but, but I don't have time to do that. And her response is that, well, everybody's always shoving Jesus out of their lives. And that's the reason why we are in this mess that we are in. When all we got to do is just do exactly what Jesus said, find an empty room in our house, go into some inner chamber, wherever it might be, and pray in secret to God in the silence. That will change and transform our life. As we speak to God, it would help if we remembered that, that no, God is not some lawyer or something who we have to impress with our words. Maybe I could pray to God as a little tiny child would pray to God and say, God, I am scared. Father, I need your help. And that's really what Jesus does in Gethsemane. He, he uses the, the word in Aramaic, Abba, meaning Daddy. Jesus literally prays, Daddy, remove this cup from me. If we prayed like small children, we would reimagine what prayer was. And we must also rediscover what prayer is, because if we do those things, we will rediscover the essence of true prayer. Where in our life, it's almost like we are a deer who is running for its life from a predator and its eyes are all bugged out and, and yet it runs high enough, it ascends up into the mountains. And then it grasps that, that my predator is far behind. And now I am safe. And I cannot be harmed where I am right here. That's really what prayer is. Prayer is a safe house for us. Prayer is, prayer is a panic room for us. Where we read in the book of Philippians, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer. Make your requests known to God with, with joy. And if we will do that, he says that the peace of God, which transpires all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what the first century church had done. We see in chapter 4, we see John and Peter have been arrested. They have been threatened. Never speak the name of Jesus even in your own houses, it says in the Greek. And yet, what is the church doing? Are they complaining about that? Are they organizing a march to go on as a means of a protest? All it says is that they come together and they lift up their, their voices in prayer to God. 
And they asked God, God, give us boldness, give us courage to proclaim your gospel. It says that when they had prayed like this, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began proclaiming Christ's gospel without any fear. This is what happens when a church really prays. Later on, we see the Apostle Peter. He is in jail. James has just been executed as a Christian. And now it looks like Peter might be next. What is the church doing? We see many Christians at the house of a sister in Christ. And late into the night, they are praying, God, please be with Peter. And they don't even know it, but he is at the gate knocking. Because God has already set him free. This is what happens when we pray. I think about Paul and Silas. They are in jail. They are beaten. They are bloodied. What are they doing? Are they saying, we have our rights. Let us out of here. What it says is that they are, after midnight, they are singing. And they are calling on the name of the Lord in prayer in their jail cell. God moves heaven and earth, sets them free from their prison cell. And we hear the words of Christ resound once again, ask and you will find. Seek and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We see jail doors swinging wide open. We see our own prison doors that we find ourselves in swinging wide open. You know, the prison cells of hatred, the prison cells of racism, of bigotry, of lust and self-centeredness. God, through the faithful prayers of his sons and daughters, moves mountains, shakes the walls, makes the rain pour down. As we bring this to a close, how does this look like for us to be a church continuously committed to prayer as they were in the first century? What I would like to challenge myself as well as everybody here too is if you have not already, find some place in your life where you can go and make it your war room. Now that might be in your basement. It might be in a closet somewhere. It might be at the city park. Maybe for you it is in your car right before you go back into work on your lunch break. But regardless of where that is, have a list of exactly what you want to pray for. Pray very specific childlike prayers. And you will see things that will astound you that you have asked for. As a church, how this looks like is really the exact same thing. Learning to collectively pray very specific childlike prayers. God, please... Start preparing hearts in this city to begin seeking after you. Give us the courage. Give us the ability to actually cross paths with them. And give us that drive and that ability to reflect you to them. And yet, brothers and sisters, if we do not adopt this first century mindset, we will remain stuck in the mud, our tires flinging mud in the air year after year after year. 
We will be enslaved to a self-reliant churchianity. And yet if we adopt this mindset and we make it our own, God is going to shake the walls. God is going to catapult mountains. He's going to part rivers and silent storms in our midst. I heard about a church in Ghana that meets two hours every single day of the year. 365 days a year, they, they get together and they pray. They had a crisis and they had people and teams who would pray 24 hours a day, 3 o'clock some of them, 8 o'clock in the morning, and they get up and they go to work. And they come back after a short rest and they are praying again that Satan might be defeated and that the gospel might go out. And the progress of a church like this, 14 thousand baptisms since 2006 when all that they had cared about was that satan will be defeated and that the gospel must go out let us continually devote and commit ourselves to come boldly before the throne of grace and to call on the name of our great god together at the wish conversion throne a prayer.